0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, don't forget your CIO when you're transforming the way you do business.
1: The business owner of that specific function is tied to what they've always done. And they may just not have thought, why do we do that step? Why don't we have four steps instead of eight?
0: What does the banking industry have in common with the federal government?
2: They don't know what they don't know. They don't know everything they have. Right? If you went to the, you know, the CISO of this, of this bank and pointed to him this webpage, I bet he or she wouldn't be aware that this webpage even exists.
3: And changing your agency's culture is a two-way street. Senior leadership, beating the drum, spreading the message, that helps. Uh, it's a necessary condition for the transformation, but it's not sufficient. Um, it it, it kind of takes that, that message coming from the top, but it also has to kind of bubble up organically From the bottom.
0: It's Monday, May 16th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop Podcast, sponsored by Invicti Security. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now a new draft of the Polaris small business solicitations out from the General Services Administration. The new version includes changes to the mentor protege part of the original request for proposals. GSA will take feedback on the revisions until next Monday. A new chief information officer is coming to the State Department. The current CIO there, Keith Jones, will leave the agency after more than a year at state and 38 years total in government. No word yet on who the acting CIO will be or when Jones's last day will be. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Friday's the deadline for getting votes in for the best bosses in federal IT. You can find the link to see the nominees and vote in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Martirana says she wants industry to help build success metrics for customer experience. She says her office will help agencies with tools to measure progress. Janet Vogels, former Chief Information Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. Janet, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the agency CIO's role in helping each agency meet the customer experience goals that the administration OMB sets for it? Welcome.
1: Well, thank you, Francis. And the CIO really does play a critical enabling role in this. You know, uh, customer experience is universal, right? We've all been that customer with that experience, and you just wonder why? Why does it take so long? What can we do about it? Well, the CIO is in a position that they can lead the way, so they can help with analyzing providing tools for surveys, that type of thing, um, how to measure and report. And the CIO also has a lot of insight on important things like privacy. So if you're surveying or you're in sensitive healthcare care areas, you know that the CIO is going to bring that to the table um, and they can so they can guide what happens through this process uh, and maybe even come up with great automated solutions.
0: What's your sense of where we've come over the last, oh, I, I guess people really started paying attention to customer experience at the federal government level between five and 10 years ago, I would say. And if I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that's when the momentum really started to build where people started to go, wait a minute, we want to think about how the websites operate and compare the experience that people have in the private sector to what they have when they interact with government, call centers, and all of the other touch points where a citizen interacts with the government. What's that evolution look like to you, both inside and now that you're outside? Uh, how that evolution's developed, Janet?
1: Well, we have evolved to the point where we know and we have to be really considerate about both internal and external customers. So for example, at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, about five years or so ago, they put a huge effort towards understanding the Medicare recipient's journey. And through that, we're able to break down that process into areas of responsibility, and smooth that out so that the service was much improved. So in some cases, I believe we're doing an excellent job. And in others, we may need to catch up a bit. But, you know, as public servants, uh, the, the federal sector, you know, it's all about the people. So customer experience is a huge part of our success and our future. So I really hope it catches on and really uh, produces some good results. It, it's worth the effort.
0: You mentioned internal customers. And I think that's uh, when I first became introduced to this concept of customer experience and the way that it relates to the government, the internal customer idea, concept, philosophy never occurred to me. Why is that as important to a leader like a CIO as the external customer, the citizen-facing customer experience?
1: Well, because the delivery of the service typically runs across multiple business components. And what happens is the experts in one area see their piece of a process. Then it goes to another business area, and they know their piece. But when we look at the customer experience as a whole, you get the whole picture start to end, and by bringing those business owners together, they understand their part in the whole delivery. So if it's an internal customer and we're taking too long, let's say, to... um, and I'm not picking on anybody here, but let's just say hire someone that has a big impact downstream, budget, staffing, projects you can accomplish. So understanding how things work internally is really critical to being able to deliver that service to each other. So if, if, if there's a log jam along the way before it gets to one office, their overall goals just aren't going to be met.
0: Janet, you talked about what the CIO adds to the customer experience journey of an agency at the beginning of this conversation. Who are your most important partners as the CIO? I imagine it's your peers in the C-suite, but it's probably not just them, right?
1: Right, because uh, as I mentioned, business owners are... Critical because they know their business. And let's just say I don't. And they want something automated to help not only help them do their business better, but then to deliver that customer service. So, business owners, C suite, and in this whole process, we need to bring in the customer. So, partners with the customer are really important. And so the private public sector alliances that have been built are really valuable because we need that diversity of opinions and viewpoints. So it, it's really, there are a lot of partners. They're very different. And I would say that's good. The more different perspectives you can get, the more diversity in the views the better product you're going to have and the faster you're going to be able to do it. If speed or, you know, you might have quality indicators also. So all those factors do play in.
0: I don't mean to veer off into a modernization discussion um, unless you'd like to, but when you talked about automation a moment ago, it strikes me, who's the right person or who are the right people in an automation discussion, for example, to say, maybe there's a business process change here that's appropriate while we're taking the opportunity to automate a process. Maybe we only need six steps instead of 10, or maybe we need 12 steps, but they're different steps than the ones that you're doing now or something like that. Is is that something that the, the business owner has to do him or herself because they're the business owner? Or is there an opportunity for a CIO in that environment to say, have you considered this possibility?
1: Yes, I do think there's a really good opportunity for that. But what happens when you bring all of the representatives together is they will see where improvement can be made, whereas the business owner of that specific function is tied to what they've always done. And they may just not have thought, why do we do that step? why don't we have four steps instead of eight? So others can often identify things like that for them. So they just have to be willing to accept that input and trust the change.
0: All right. What's the measure to determine when you've got the tools, you've got a strategy in place, how do you determine in progress during the journey that you're on the right track and you're not going to wind up someplace you didn't want to go.
1: Well, you, you, to do that, you really need to start with the surveys and get the input and really do that journey map, you know, from the customer's point of view end to end. But if you see the entire process, you may want to break that down. So if it goes through multiple business functions, for an output, each may have their own set of goals and you wanna look at quality, performance, responses, that type of thing and set achievable goals. So when you see where you stand and then you have to figure out how are we gonna fix it, set those goals at achievable measures over time so you're not going to be able to fix you know solve global warming in in one setting right but there are steps to do that and then bring that team together so don't let the team just go back to what they've always done keep that alive keep that input alive and maybe the CIO then can help with some of the reporting on that. So it's visible because that keeps everybody in the loop and that communication is key.
0: Janet Vogel, great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You can read more about the customer experience tools the federal CIO's office is working on in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. The lineup for the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference this Thursday is stacked conference is happening at the international spy museum in downtown dc you can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at the daily scoop podcast.com The White House executive order on cybersecurity is officially one year old. Its birthday was last Thursday. Mark Rawls is president and COO of Invicti Security. Invicti Security sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Mark, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you see one year out from the executive order? What kind of progress are agencies making? What kind of supporting documentation is out there that you think is helpful? Any of that? Welcome, Mark.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Francis. Really happy to, to be on the program today and uh, a big fan of what you guys do at Daily Scoop. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of progress, and I think this is something that's been long overdue. I think a lot of folks within the industry were hoping for a long time, I mean, measured in, in years, not months, right, that we would see a level of seriousness from the government um, around. Um, you know, security in general, zero trust, also web application security. And so what the Biden administration published a year ago, we, we really cheered that on, not just that it's it's good for us as a business, it's also good for us as individuals, right? My data, your data, my parents' data, my friends' data, I mean, all, all of that flows through one government entity or another, and anything that we're doing to get those, you know, that data more secure is just, it's just good for all of us. Um, so, so we really turned that on. We've seen some good progress, but like you know, government agencies, um, you know, they move at a certain pace. There's a lot that they need to do to diligence any solutions that they're going to bring in, changes they're going to make. All of that's very natural, very healthy. Um, but we've definitely seen a lot of, of real positive movement, and I think that's very encouraging. You know, in terms of, of documentation, you know, obviously the NIST, you know, standards. Um, have been very important, you know, as well at, you know, so, so NIST you know 800.53, as I'm sure you know, your audience is really familiar with, you know, the OMB memo um, that, that came out is is also very relevant here. Um, but at the end of the day, what it what it really points to is the government has to get organized and change processes, change systems, hire the right folks, so that we can so that we can get more secure because because the attacks are, are coming, you know, and they have been. And so we, we really need the government to catch up.
0: You said there's some good progress and you emphasize the word some. How much of the the whatever lack of progress there is, do you think is just the natural cadence of an agency doing what an agency does? And how much of it is that diligence that you mentioned a moment ago? And how much of it might be some other challenge that an organization finds itself up against?
2: Yeah, I, I think a lot of the delays that we see are, you know, these entities are large organizations. And and I would argue actually with many of actually the commercial clients that we support, whether these are large financial institutions, healthcare, technology, you know, be, be it as it may, even when they get a board directive around becoming more secure, it still takes time. It takes time to research. It takes time to organize. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing is, is very natural. What's what continues to be alarming though. So we did, a report recently we call the Invicti AppSec Indicator. And what we did is we looked at our own data of our customers scanning their applications and then broke that down by industry. One of the things that we saw is that if you looked across all all of our customers, and and by the way, we're growing rapidly, so we have a lot of new customers who are scanning for the first time. If you look across all, what we see is an average of 21% of organizations find at least one SQL injection vulnerability. Right. And SQL injection, this isn't, this isn't cutting edge, right? These are, are this is this is you know, 20 plus years we've been thinking SQL injection will be stamped out, you know, next year. And, and here we are 20 years later, it's still there. Um, 21% within within our data sample as a whole, but within government organizations, it was 32%. And so there is a much higher degree of risk there. And again, we're just talking SQL injection. We could, you know, in, in other areas, you see, you see you know, some, some even more alarming stats. Um, But that shows that that the size of the gap within the government is larger. And so we actually need to see a higher level of urgency.
0: You piqued my interest there when you referenced the financial services industry clients that you have, because uh, agency CIOs have told me over and over again, when I say, who do you look to for maybe as a model for what you want to achieve? I get financial services sector as a response to that question an awful lot, Mark. And I wonder what that sector in particular might have in the context of all the things we've talked about, cyber EO, zero trust memo, and so on, what might that sector have to instruct federal CIOs, federal CISOs, CTOs, et cetera, about where they should go and maybe not even tactically, but strategically what they should be thinking about?
2: Yeah, that's a a great point. And I think one of the really interesting parallels that we see, and this is probably driving some of what you hear, is that both with large you know, global top 10 banks, as an example, if you look at their you know, IT and cybersecurity, at, you know, landscape and attack surface, it, it resembles the government in some key ways. And one of those big ways is that they've got a really long tail of legacy, you know, legacy uh, you know, hardware, legacy software in our, what we see as legacy applications and so they will have you know ancient applications that they still rely upon as well as you know brand new cutting edge applications um i actually um in the in the kind of responsible party for one of our corporate credit cards and i had to go through some process the other day because there had been a security hold on it through you know some normal travel purchases and and as i clicked through the workflow all of a sudden i hit this web page that i kid you not it looked like it had been you know, like you know, coded in a Microsoft front page, right? By some junior in college back when I was in college in the late 90s. Um, I mean, that, that's really what it looked like. And so applications like that are still in the workflow for, for large finance. And again, this was a, a global top five bank, right? As it is for the government. So I think there are those parallels and they're facing similar challenges. They have just this sprawling infrastructure and they also, they don't know what they don't know. They don't know everything they have, right? If you went to the, you know, the CISO of this, of this bank and pointing to this web page, I bet he or she wouldn't be aware that this web page even exists, or that they're still reliant on what is clearly such such you know was was written so long ago, and and so I think it's a uh, and so I think there's a lot of parallels there, and at the end of the day, they also both face the same challenge of there are never going to be enough people, and so you need a lot, you need you know robust tools that give you the ability to discover because you don't know everything you have you need automation because you just don't have enough people and you need that complete coverage that look, some ancient application coded in COBOL, like you still got to scan it and secure it because that's still an entry point. Right. And, you know, just like government agencies are are behind the curve a little bit or, or catching up when it comes to application security, they're in the same boat on zero trust. And so if a bad actor gets in through an application, even if it's a, a, a legacy Fortran application, you know, without zero trust in place, which which most agencies aren't going to have, you know, that's still a huge risk as someone can traverse the network. Um, you know, an escalate privilege and, and so on. And so, so again, I, I think that's a really good parallel. It's really interesting that you say that um, because again, we see a lot when we talk to customers, we have very similar
1: conversations.
0: That front page coded website, which I wrote a few of, by the way, uh, in like um, the 1990s. Um, me as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And when you think about that as an entry point, the way you just explained it, Mark, it really, I think, calls attention to the landscape that somebody in the federal government has to think about. Cause those things probably exist in the federal government too and yet Absolutely. also constantly developing new software applications. What's the security process look like to do? Cause you got to do both, you know, it's, it's. Uh, you do. It, so you do. what does that look like?
2: You, you do and, and And this is, this is also, this speaks also to a lot of the challenge that I think these organizations, you know, the, the government organizations and agencies face is that a lot of the tools that they've relied on historically, Right? So if you think about the, the big uh, you know, uh, software vendors, you know, the IBMs, et cetera, of the world that have long supplied great products and tools, phenomenal products and tools to the government, a lot of those have not continued to see the development to be able to handle modern applications. What they do very well is the legacy. And then there's a ton of, of you know, money and investment and venture capital interest and everything pouring into the space where we are in application security, but again, that's all focused on the cutting edge, right? And on on scanning and securing cutting edge applications, you have very few vendors that that are capable of doing both. And and that's where I think government agencies have been really frustrated of, of how do you find one solution? You know, I don't I don't want to plug in Vicky too too much or too strenuously, but that's been part of of our benefit. You know, we've been in application security since two thousand five. know essentially since web applications were a thing and yet you know we we continue to pour you know huge resources and investment into staying up to date on cutting edge applications you know modern um authentication frameworks which is a a really big challenge when scanning applications at scale which you need to do with government agencies and and so you really need that that toolkit for your internal teams that handles the legacy and that handles the the modern Um, and so that's that's one of those conversations that we have a lot of, and a lot of what we end up, you know, doing as we go through proof of concept trials is showing that ability that, yes, we can scan this kind of, um, uh, you know, you know, antiquated, but still very useful and important piece of code, as well as, you know, what, what the, you know, the modern latest and greatest that everyone's excited about.
0: Mark Rawls of Invicti Security, appreciate you being on the program today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about the one-year anniversary of the Cyber EO in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Air Force's new technology roadmap is in development now under Chief Technology Officer Jay Bonchi. The Air Force is already committed to a multi-cloud environment for computing, Major Christopher Olson's military deputy in the office of the Chief Software Officer of the Air Force, he tells my Fedscoop colleague Billy Mitchell what he and his colleagues are trying to prevent.
3: Say you have program A, and and they're spending their money to develop this DevSecOps platform, Uh, and then you have program B, who's also spending their money to develop a DevSecOps platform, and those two platforms are 90% the same technical solution. Um, that's not a great use of taxpayer funds or our limited resources in the Air Force. So um, what we want to do is is take that 90% solution make that an enterprise service that's available to all of the program offices and software factories in the Air Force um, so that they can spend their limited resources developing mission capabilities um, that will actually help the warfighter and not reinvesting in platform work um, that's really just overhead cost Uh, and so that's the idea and and we do that through um, through our platform one program they're the ones who provide that enterprise DevSecOps platform I heard a good analogy recently that kind of can make drive it home for maybe the less technical audience. Is uh, if I'm a combatant commander and I need to get supplies from the the um, the op- Conus from the United States to the area of operations overseas, um, it, it, that we have a capability for that. Uh, one of them is called the C-5 Galaxy. It's a huge airplane. You can put tanks in it. You can put other helicopters. It's massive. And so you could load it up with whatever supplies you need from the United States and get them into the theater. So you might say like, Chris, what does that have to do with DevSecOps? Well, our platform is the C5. Um, it, what we don't want is every combatant commander across the world to say, I need to get supplies from the United States to my air of operations. What I'll do is I'll start a program to build a cargo plane. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> we already have that. The cargo plane exists, just use the one that we have. Um, and, but what goes along with that is if you think about like a C5, um, it, 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 there's a cost associated with it, um, it's not free, so you have to have an air crew to run it, you have to have maintainers, you have to have a supply chain, there's a whole ecosystem around the C-5, um, and, and, and it's similar with our enterprise platform. Um, so the, it takes a certain amount of central fun, centralized funding to keep the platform running, but in the end, uh, for the Air Force as an enterprise, it's cheaper to do that once and reuse it many times than to keep building it over and over again. So Major Olson, how do you see the public sector agencies taking more innovative approaches to software modernization to include cybersecurity in 2022? Yeah, so, you know, from where I sit in the chief software office, I, I see that the public sector and specifically the Department of the Air Force is, is kind of coming around to where the commercial sector has been for maybe 10, 12 years, understanding um, that in the modern era, the only way to do software and IT is agile and DevSecOps. Um, we've realized that uh, this, this idea of, I'm gonna develop a five year plan for my project and I'm going to know exactly how much it's gonna cost, how many people I'm gonna need, and exactly what I'm gonna deliver in the end, and it's gonna be what the warfighter wants at the end, uh, is, is um, kind of, um, uh, we have 30 years of evidence <laughs> to show that that's not a great way of doing business. And so we're, tr- we're, we're gonna come around and we're, tr- and we're tr- finally starting to embrace the idea that the way you get working software, the way you get working IT is small, rapid sprints, get something into the hands of the user immediately, have those tight uh, user feedback loops, and you iterate from there. Uh, and as far as the security aspect goes, um, you know, it, probably not a surprise to this audience, but we're, we're learning that, y- Security can't be bolted on at the end. Um, That's never gonna work. You can't develop your your system and then hand it over to the security team and say, okay, make sure it's secure. Uh, That is a recipe for disaster and rework, and in the end, you're gonna field an unsecure system. Uh, So we need to get security um, even before the first line of code is written, when when we're talking software development, uh, the security team needs to be there with the developers uh, and the IT operators. That's why we call it DevSecOps. So talent is often a major challenge in all of this uh, across IT sector. So how do you see digital workforce enablement helping agencies improve how they attract and retain skilled employees? Well, I think like a lot of businesses and, and, and government organizations are finding out, um, you know, as terrible as COVID was, uh, it really was kind of a forcing function to, to, to make some of these um, uh, large institutions very set in their ways, um, kind of do the remote work telework experiment And what they found over the course of COVID is that, hey, it can work. And so um, not only are they seeing that, hey, there's a huge cost saving implication here from a facility standpoint, like if I can have my people telework more than 50% of the time, I can reduce my desk footprint by 50% and I can save a lot of money uh, not having to lease buildings uh, somewhere else. I can use my government buildings only. Um, So that's one piece. But the other piece is that we can say, "Hey, we no longer have to go out and try to find talent and convince them to move to Washington D.C. or Dayton, Ohio, or wherever, whatever wherever the installation is." We can actually say, "Hey, you're in Colorado. That's great. We'd love to have your talent on the team, and you don't even have to move." Um, and so, you know, we have we have a challenge in the in the in the DoD, you know, federal government at large, in that. Um, we already are kind of at a disadvantage with the pay we can provide. Uh, So the private sector can always pay more than we can uh, for for these really um, highly sought after technical positions. And so when we can be flexible with work hours with work location, that does give us an advantage and bring us back into the competition space. And it also, um, you know, and our other selling point is we can say, hey, you get to come work with us, you get to do things and work on missions that you may not get to ever have the chance to work on in the private sector. Um, And so, yeah, I I think the adding in the telework, adding in the remote work, and then the last piece I'll add um, you know, our, our chief information officer, Ms. Kanelsenberger, she likes to say we, we, we're migrating from looking at IT as a cost center to IT as a competitive advantage. And part of that competitive advantage is um, not just on the customer side, but on the people who are delivering the capabilities. Your top-tier talent—they want to work with—they um, want to work with modern tools, modern technologies. Um, they do not want to watch the blue circle <laughs> on their desktop whenever they're trying to do their work. So culture is another barrier, and as we close out, I want to address that. Culture change is repeatedly identified by business leaders as one of the biggest barriers to digital transformation.
0: How do you see the public sector addressing the culture change problem?
3: Yeah, it is a big problem, especially when you think about an organization as large as the Department of the Air Force. Uh, There's a lot of, uh, call it institutional inertia, to overcome. Um, And so I think, you know, my, my personal opinion is that the... The senior leadership, beating the drum, spreading the message, that helps. Uh, It's a necessary condition for the transformation, but it's not sufficient. Um, it it kind of takes that that message coming from the top, but it also has to kind of bubble up organically from the bottom. And so I think um, the the change kind of starts in these small pockets of excellence. Um, you know, it's what we're seeing in the Department of the Air Force software ecosystem. Um, you, you see a team like you know many people have heard of Kessel Run and the great work they do with the uh, providing uh, warfighting applications for the Air Operations Center. Um, that was that started as kind of a small team of change agents rogue individuals that said hey the the government we do have the talent and the expertise to do DevSecOps uh, organically and we can deliver these applications of value Um, and other organizations kind of saw that Um, it gained the attention of senior leadership it gained the attention of um, uh, of congress and the public and so Uh, they say, how do I get that kind of attitude? How do I get that kind of transformation into my organization? And when you have your kind of like mid-level management asking that question, I think that's when you've uh, really hit the inflection point.
0: Major Christopher Olson, military deputy in the office of the chief software officer of the Air Force. With my FedScoop colleague, Billy Mitchell, you can find a link to watch the whole conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like The Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.